My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm, of course, your host, Christian Ashley. I'm very glad to have you guys here as we get very close to the end of Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 23 today. Before that, a little bit of housekeeping stuff. Uh, I did promise a while back that I would be potentially uh, being interviewed slash hosting with someone on their podcast. And this is the basically biblical podcast. This is done by Jesse Lucas, who I just recorded with last night. Had a fantastic time with him. We uh, uh, some very similar stuff in our backgrounds to an extent there. And seeing each other's journey was really fun. We, uh, I mean, our plan originally was to do predestination and free will and then bring in that into Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And we talked about that stuff, but we also, (laughs) I know this is hard for you to ever imagine me going off on tangents or anything like that. And uh, we just kind of fed off of each other. And that was a lot of fun. So uh, when that does drop, I will let you guys know so you can listen to it. It was a very fun time, very productive conversation. Uh, well worth all your time as well. <clears throat> so today, uh, like I said, we'll be in Luke 23, starting in verses 1 through 5. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said, to the chief priests and the crowds. I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. I kind of mentioned this last time, but notice how the Pharisees approach Pilate about Jesus' supposed wrongdoings. Like I said then, they changed their charge from blasphemy to treason against Rome even though they themselves would like nothing more to be free of Rome, unless, of course, it would result in them losing their power. We see the hypocrisy inerrant, inherent in those, a difference between inerrant and inherent, <laughs> in those situations. And it bugs us, but are we any different in our own lives if we're being honest with ourselves? Right? We'll stand up for something when it affects us. We'll say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that because we're reminded of what we're currently doing. If anything, we should take a lesson here from what the Pharisees are doing and going, okay, here's how they handled it poorly. How have I handled it poorly in the past and how can I prevent myself from doing it in the future? Because that's what's going to make us different than them. We're going to learn our lesson, hopefully, and seek out the truth so that this doesn't happen again. And that's just not, it's not good for anyone to allow that to, to dwell in our hearts. Also, we see here Jesus talking to Pilate, and he gives him the, inf- the affirmative. When he's asked, are you the king of the Jews? He says, you have said so. And he does this. This is not the first time he's done this. In Luke alone, he did it in front of the Pharisees too. He is once more denying his ability to defend himself so that he can go to the cross and die for our sakes. This is unfair. If you have a heart, you're going... No, this should not be happening. Why isn't Jesus defending himself? Well, because he doesn't need to. He doesn't want to. It's unrighteous. It's unjust. And that's kind of the purpose in that he's taking this moment in this unjust time to do something so just and righteous and merciful and loving that no other human being could ever have possibly done this. We want to defend ourselves. That is a good thing. But there's also a time not to do it. And I can't tell you when, but I do know if Jesus, there's a moment in his time, he never, excuse me, there were times he didn't defend himself. And this is obviously like a huge outlier in that regard of how uh, egregious the situation is for him not to defend himself. But there were times when he didn't. There were times he just lets people speak and then move on with his life. We should do the same sometimes. We got to figure out when. I mean, but, but also don't forget, Pilate sees the fact that this is an innocent man. And this is probably just some petty religious squabble he doesn't want to get involved in because he can't see any true fault in Jesus. And because Jesus isn't acting like some treacherous rabble rouser, but instead just this humble guy who just seems to be outnumbered by a bunch of people who hate him 
And this confuses Pilate. So let's see what Pilate actually does with this information from verses 6 through 16. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. <laughs> Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Sorry, I couldn't keep a straight face to the, the Pilate and Herod scene. We'll get to that in a second. You see what Jesus does? He brings people together. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> but let's start with Pilate before we get to Herod. Here we see him spinelessly trying to get someone else to take care of this, make it their problem and not his, by going to get Herod Antipas involved. Since, uh, technically speaking, Jesus would fall under his jurisdiction as a Galilean. And we'll see more of his pathetic and wishy-washy nature in this chapter. But his inability to pick a side and to have a desire to not rile anyone up shows how terrible he is at his job. Where tough decisions need to get made that anger people sometimes. No one tells you that when you get into a leadership role. I mean, if they do, thank God, because they're, they're actually telling you something very worthwhile. But most people, when they get into leadership positions in ministry, they're just told, oh, just do things and things will get done. And there'll be troubles every now and then, but that's fine. No, people are going to hate the decisions that you make, that you are making, hopefully, within what God is telling you to do. There have been plenty of times in churches I've been in where leaders have had to make the tough calls for change and then followed through with them in a way that angered the people in their churches who either wanted things to remain the same or to be done their way instead. Plenty of times. I remember when I was younger, there were some shakeups we were making uh, in one of my churches with uh, how we were handling children's ministry and stuff like that. And people were all up in arms. And I don't remember all the particulars of it. I just remember like the small group my parents were attending at the time kind of fractured and broken too. And some people left the church. Some people stayed. We stayed. And it was over stuff like this as well, some other things as well. But I do remember my pastor actually taking the time to go to this one individual small group in the church and talk about that situation. That showed me a great leader. There have been other times I have seen poor leadership. When we make decisions at this one particular church where if you weren't this ideal image of a man, you didn't deserve to be involved in leadership because that's the way the head pastor saw men. You had to be this kind of person. I'm making a joke here, but it's really not that far off. You had to be a man who could carry a two-ton uh, bit of lumber in one hand and have your wife and three and a half children held in the other hand. And that's that's a real man. While you're also throwing a football at the same time. It, that's a ridiculous thing to look at, but like that's how it felt. And there were plenty of people who left the church. I actually ended up being one of them after a while because I can't live up to that standard. That's not me. And I'm not going to change myself because of who I am should not be something that you have to define for me. It should be who God and I define for me. That's an example of leadership being handled poorly, making someone, uh, they would have said, oh, this is a tough call we have to make. We have to weed out the people who aren't good enough here. And that's, that's not good. I've also been in the church where uh, the pastor stepped down because he was wrestling with immense things that I can't go into full detail about. But uh, there were bad decisions that were made in the church that he was responsible for. There were times that he needed help and he wasn't seeking it out like he should have. And it all just kind of jumbled together and came crashing down and it hurt everyone involved. And it's one of those things. This is a man I highly respect, but he's just a man. And he made bad decisions. Sometimes before he made some really good decisions to the point of how he handled things during COVID. Say, hey, 
I'm going to learn how to handle this electronic stuff that I have no care for in the world because this is the only way I'm going to be able to reach people in that time. He did that magnificently. But there are other things because he's just a man he screwed up on. And we take that from Pilate. It's like, look, a good leader is going to make tough calls that are going to ultimately benefit the church if he's acting within the realm of where God wants him and to look after his flock. When a good leader is doing this, then it doesn't matter what those under him believe about how things should be run. But a good leader will also listen to those he leads and not do anything just for the sake of placating them, but because it is what is best for the ministry. Sometimes we can get these grand ideas in our head as leaders. Me like, man, if we just did this, like people would come to church and do all this and be a lot of fun stuff. And you kind of have that person that says, wait, did you consider this? Did you think about the consequences if you say this, if you do this? Well, me, as a very gung-ho person sometimes, I don't always think about that. So I need someone to temper me and go, great idea. How about this? And I need to be willing to listen to that person if what they're saying is good. And chances are, if there's someone around me that I trust enough to say those things to me, they're probably going to have something good to say. Learn how to have people around you who aren't yes men, who aren't there to just say, oh, well, you have the greatest idea ever, Christian. And that's the wrong thing, especially for me. That's the last thing I need to hear. Because if that's all I hear, then I'm going to think every idea I have is good. And that's not good. Now let's go over to Herod. Here, Herod finally gets what he wanted this whole time. And it disappoints him. Because Jesus doesn't have the time, nor does he care to do what Herod wants him to do in performing signs and miracles. Herod has heard the stories. There's this guy great teacher who's saying all these wonderful things and he heals people. People who are blind now see. People who are dead are now living. It's like, wow, that's pretty cool. I want to see that happening. And like, well, of course he wants to see that happening. What human you hear that and go, "Hmm, I want to confirm that for myself. There's nothing inherently wrong with that idea. But Herod just wants to see the miracles. He just wants to see the signs. And Jesus has already spoken against those people in Luke. They are worthless to the ministry because they have no desire to repent of their sins and change their hearts. Herod most definitely does not desire to see Jesus for who he truly is. If Jesus had performed miracles and signs there, they would have served no purpose because Herod didn't deserve to see anything. And if Jesus started performing miracles, there's a chance that Herod may have pardoned him because he liked the magic tricks. And that defeats the purpose of why he came to this earth. So instead of realizing the truth about Jesus' character, Herod, who is denied what he wants, mocks and shames him instead, becoming friends with the likewise godless and immoral Pilate. See what Jesus does? He brings people together. It's a beautiful thing so that they can all murder him. <laughs> that's how sad it is. The one thing that unites these people is their hatred of the truth, even if they don't realize it. And to go into why one of the reasons why Jesus didn't speak up, we go to Isaiah 53, 7. This is from the NASB. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. He is the lamb. He is the sheep. It is not his job to speak out when it is his turn to be slaughtered, when it is his turn to be sheared for our sake. So Jesus doesn't defend himself. Let's also give some credit to Pilate here. Some credit. He did some good work and that he tried to get Jesus acquitted as he saw that he had done no wrong. So like Pilate sees the truth. Oh, this man's done no wrong. Well, I'm going to acquit him. Yet, even when Pilate pushes for mercy, he was still going to punish Jesus to try and make it look like he did something to the Jewish leaders. So that's where we lose him. He's right. Jesus has done no wrong. He doesn't deserve this. But, ah, oh man, I still, I'm a placator. That's what I got to do. Let me give them something too. Make them look like they won. No, sometimes you got to make people lose. It's a hard thing to do. It's not a fun thing to do. But sometimes people need to lose because they have stupid ideas and they're living in sin. You know what? It's not healthy for any church leader to do that. Let's learn from Pilate there too. But they the Jewish leaders wouldn't settle for anything less than his death. And because of what Pilate does later, he just further implicates himself 
in Jesus's eventual murder alongside the Pharisees, the Roman soldiers, the people of Israel, and every single one of us who has ever sinned against God and found ourselves separated from him and in the need of a savior who can bridge the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. You know who that list covers? Every living person, except for Jesus Christ. There's only ever been one sinless being in this world, and it was him. Who's responsible for Jesus' death? Me and you, and everyone who has ever existed under the fall, under the original sin that exists in our hearts. That's why Jesus came to die, because there wasn't a single person other than him who could have done it, who could have saved us from ourselves. 17 through 25. Now, uh, 17 real quick. Uh, Some of your Bibles may have this in there. Some of them may not. This is one of those that may have been in addition to Luke. So like, I, I want to do my due uh, diligence with you to say, hey, this may or may not be scripture. It may have been added on by a later writer or editor or something like that. So as far as we know, this is probably in the original text, but it depends on who's translating. So that's verse 17. And sometimes it's also in verse 19 instead. Now he, being Pilate, was obliged to release one man to them at the festival. But they all cried out together. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let's give him, let's give him some credit here. He gives one final gambit, Pilate does. One last desperate move where he works to free Jesus without getting his hands dirty. That's the bad part. Good part is trying to get Jesus released, even though ultimately it would be bad. He doesn't know that. This spectacle of freeing one prisoner amongst a captive and defeated people was a masterful stroke of placating the conquered nations that Rome made a part of its empire. Made them feel like, hey, guys, you know, I'm sure we conquered you and you lost your friends. They all died in that battle. But hey, we're just hanging out, guys. We're in charge and we'll give you something that makes you happy. (laughs) And it showed them... (laughs) Not just as slaughterers and harsh overlords, but as a people who they simply wish to engage in temporary violence for the good of the people. (laughs) And it's so false and hollow, but it worked brilliantly because it fooled the people. It gave them situations like this where, oh, this only happened because of Rome. Forgetting that Rome was the reason they were in, one of the reasons why they're in the situation to begin with. You got to love Uh, maybe not love, at least respect the way that can mess with people's heads. It's not good, obviously, but dang it if it didn't work. And we also see here, like spurred on by the Jewish leaders, the people of Israel called out for Jesus to be crucified and the dangerous revolutionary murderer and thief called Barabbas to be let out instead. I mean, there's some speculation here into why they would choose him. I mean, perhaps they thought that pardoning an insurrectionist might lead to a popular revolt against the leadership under Rome, or maybe they were just that petty and wanted a convicted robber and killer to set free instead of the person who had challenged their authority. I kind of tend towards the latter, and I thought, man, wouldn't it be funny if uh, Barabbas was brought out instead of Jesus? And like, I can, I can see the logic behind that. Like, either way, no single man or woman would have been good enough to set be, to have been set free next to Jesus but it happened anyways. Like, if you look over this whole situation, you also see that Barabbas' names, uh, excuse me, Barabbas' name means son of the father. In some cases, it can also mean son of the teacher. Either way, while the son of the father was set free, the actual son of the father was sentenced to death by crucifixion. These very same people outside of the religious establishment had been praising Jesus' name when he entered Jerusalem, and yet, under the direction of their leaders that they didn't like, they now called for him to be crucified instead of Barabbas, who justly, for his sins, deserved to have this happen. And now the unjust is happening. Whew. 
Yeah, let us also choose to focus here on the concept of this being okay. Yeah, let's on the idea that this is somehow only the fault of the Jewish people as a whole for rejecting Jesus and sending him to be murdered. That is propped up, cropped up uh, so many times throughout the church's history. It's astounding how many times this has happened, how many bad takes have come as a result of this. Look, okay, the church over the years has done an immensely terrible job of uh, of scapegoating the Jewish people for their role in the crucifixion to the point where many of the most prolific anti-Semitic people on the planet have come from the church. Uh, You know, you look at the Ku Klux Klan, uh, you're sure uh, a lot of it was uh, anti-African-American sentiments, but there was also a huge portion of them very anti-Semite. Most of those people were in the church. Germany, even pre-Nazis, plenty of people calling for the death and destruction of the Jewish people, thinking that they were liars and thieves and murderers of Jesus. Spanish Inquisition, one of the people, groups that were affected other than the Muslims who lived within Spain, uh, who were cast out of Spain in 1492, were the Jewish people because they were, in their eyes, they were the murderers of Christ who didn't deserve the gospel. The church, uh, I mean, every single crusade, uh, that that actually made its way into Israel, which, by the way, some of them did not. <laughs> you ever look up the history of the Crusades? They're a wild selection of idiocy and poor planning. And like we have an idea, but not an actual way of executing that idea. Sometimes you seek out to you know, free Israel from uh, the Arab marauders. Sometimes you end up sacking Constantinople. You know, these things kind of happen, you know. In your everyday life, doesn't that just happen? Like, I'm trying to do something good, and I end up sacking an entire city that's on my side. My point bringing up Crusades, too, is that when they got into Israel, yes, other they shouldn't have been persecuting anyone, having learned nothing from Christ's example, but they persecuted the Muslims and the Jews, and including their own Christians who were trying to defend their neighbors because part of that sentiment came from, oh, the Jewish people, they killed Jesus. Let me make this as clear as possible. Anti-Semitism has no place in the Church of Jesus Christ. Anyone who dares say the opposite from the pulpit deserves to be tarred and feathered, excommunicated, and ridiculed for the rest of their miserable existences. And I know some of you were like, whoa, Christian, that was kind of uh, uh, that was kind of out of left field. Like, you're getting all angry. It's like, yes, I am angry because I hate seeing the gospel misrepresented by people who should know better, by people who are reading the same book I am and reaching the wrong conclusions. Yet... Providentially for these fools and my anger, God commands us all to be merciful instead to everyone. So we need to pray for them, to see the light, and to reject any theology based on the erroneous idea that there could ever be one race being superior to another. That is nowhere in Scripture. Not even. We've talked about it before. Even when God selected the Jewish people out of everyone, it's not because they were better. They were meant to be set apart. They were meant to be holy. But it's not because they were better than everyone else. Even when we see that idea, we need to be merciful. We need to pray for them. We need to hope, have them see the light. Every single person, I said it before, I'll say it again. Every single person who has ever sinned is responsible for the death of Jesus, alongside God, who is ultimately the one who allowed it to happen for our sake. God allowed this injustice, this death of Jesus for all of us, and all means all. Even those who continue to deny the gift that God has extended to us, there's still a chance for them somewhere down the road to repent of their actions and turn to him. It's probably not going to happen for a lot of them, but I don't get to say it's never going to happen because I don't know their heart. I don't know the plans that God has for them. And by writing off an entire people group saying, oh, it's their fault, well, then no one's looking at me. If I say it's their fault, no one's looking at my sins. Saying Jesus died because of the sins Christian committed. Jesus died for the sins that you've committed. If I can scapegoat someone else and go, I'm looking pretty dang good compared to them. It's a false sense of pride. It's terrible. It has no place in the church. It needs to be weeded out and these people forced from positions of authority because they have no right to say these things to the people of God. Christians have screwed up the world enough. Let's fix it before we make it even worse than it already is. Also as well, some people, and 
bit of an overcorrection, kind of the opposite side of things. They try to make Pilate look like he's innocent of Jesus's death. And I get the I get the reason why, because he does attempt several times, more than what you would expect from a Roman leader, to prevent Jesus from dying. But instead of following through, if he truly believed Jesus was innocent, what should he have done? Well, he shouldn't have let him be killed. He should have made people angry. But instead, by giving in to their demands, hearing these voices rise up against the idea of setting Jesus free, what does Pilate do? He lets their voices prevail, all for the sake of being a people pleaser. And he fails to do that too, because he is so shiftless and passive that no one respects him. He is not an innocent in this, but neither is he the primary one at fault here. Humanity is. The entirety of humanity is at fault. Without our continued rebellion against God, there would have been no reason for Jesus to die. Yet he did so willingly for all of us. I got a huge chunk coming up in verses 26 through 43. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Uh, Luke doesn't really go too much in depth here. This is because Simon... Uh, was nearby. They saw he was capable enough. Jesus was barely able to hold the cross up at this point in time. He was just suffering that much. 27. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus, we see here at the start, in the midst of pain and immense Anguish takes the time to look out for the women who are in misery at his crucifixion. Right here, sometimes, this is taken a couple ways in commentary. Some, a big part of Jewish you know, funeral processions and uh, stuff like that were to have hired mourners to like wail and beat their breasts and like just uh, be in agony for days on end to show like, oh, this person was alive and now they're no longer alive. So some people think that this is what's happening. Other people like me go, these are probably women within Jesus's ministry who we'll see later on in this chapter who love him, who have stood beside him and listened to him and his words and then walked in fulfillment of those words and being true followers of him. And he looks at them and has compassion on them. Like people will rightly, if we look in the book of John, see how it, it focuses on John uh, as Jesus asks his disciple to look after his mother. But Jesus didn't only look at his familial relations. Some of these women here probably don't know who Jesus is. And they're wailing as part of maybe they've heard the message. Maybe they've actually seen him speak. And they're mourning the loss of someone as compared to some of the other women there who probably know him a little better. Jesus looked out for everyone. His prophecy here about the coming war with Rome 
and how it would be terrible for women in those times is a parallel. It's, it's meant to parallel how God will have no mercy for his own people for what was done to Jesus, just like God would have no mercy for Jesus in this moment in time. God has to kill Jesus through these actions here so that he can die on the cross for the sake of the world, taking all of our sins upon himself. That has to happen. So too has to happen as punishment for Israel as part, them being partially responsible. Once again, everyone is responsible for Jesus's death. But there also needs to be punishment for people who have never listened to God fully. And what's going to happen from 66, 67 AD all the way to 73 AD is going to be a period of woe for the Jewish people. Uh, for a group of people who've experienced a lot of woe, this would be one of the worst. And Jesus compares it as like, hey, like, look, I'm just this, he uses that uh, imagery of, he's just a green wood, which uh, if I remember correctly, when you're trying to burn something, I don't think you want the green wood because there's still a lot of moisture inside of it, so it's a lot harder for it to burn. But dry wood, there's not as much moisture, obviously, being dry. <laughs> And the Jewish people at that time are going to be so dry. And that fire is going to spread, that fire of war. And there's going to be in a time of immense mourning there. You're mourning me now. There's going to be a lot more mourning coming on later. And Jesus is trying to warn them in his compassion, in the midst of dying, he still looks out for other people and wants them to be better than themselves and to see beyond what is happening now and to protect themselves when the time comes. We also see here Jesus taught in Luke 6 about how we are supposed to love our enemies. Here we see that in full display in his asking for mercy and forgiveness to the very people who are now putting him to death. We are to follow his example and forgive and love the same people who harm us and those around us, no matter how much we desire retribution. Nope. And I know some people go, oh, you don't want me to defend myself? I say, look, perhaps one day God may allow us to be his retribution in this world. He may allow us in the form of a police officer, a fireman, or a medical professional, what have you, who is able to identify a problem, a social worker, see that problem, and then solve that problem. That could be what happens. But Jesus knew at this specific moment in time that he wasn't supposed to have that happen then. It would be righteous if angels were called down by Jesus and slaughtered every single person who didn't believe in him that day. And Jesus was allowed to live. But that's not what happened. Jesus died anyways for us, asking for mercy and forgiveness for us for doing what we didn't really understand. Even when they mocked him and he was supposedly un unable to save himself, willingly withholding his power to not get away from this moment, he still asked for God to forgive them. We need to do the same. Like, sure, said, there may be times when he calls on us to be the one to enact out his vengeance, but I better be dang right and sure that it is him saying that and not me. Because I don't want to be on the receiving end of what would be his judgment for falsely attributing his words to what I desire. And we also look at the soldiers. They're offering him this cheap wine. That's one of the things they're kind of given on campaign or in their normal duties. To, it's kind of like just there to placate them. You know, you keep your soldiers a little drunk. They're not thinking about insurrections and mutinies and stuff like that. But really, this is not going to quench Jesus' thirst. And if anything, it's going to prolong his agony because it may dull his senses if he drinks enough of it to get a little drunk. And this is just another slight against him given by the soldiers. While they're offering him this cheap wine, they're stealing his clothes and bartering and casting lots to see who can take them. And they mock him even more by placing the king of the Jews sign above him to invalidate his truthful nature as their king who they rejected. And yet Jesus says... Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. Yet, before we get to the centurion later on, there is one person who recognizes what's happening here. And in other Gospels, we know this person as a thief on the cross. He's an enigma to us. We don't know his name. He dies soon after this moment, so we aren't able to gain further insights into who he was before this, outside of the fact that he is truly repentant of his sins. Like, uh, we didn't meet like his sister in Acts or something like that. And she, oh yeah, this is totally what he's about. But then Jesus changed him on a cross or anything like that. Like we don't get any of that. What we do get is a person who recognizes his own moral failings and then sees the one person who can change that. 
and Jesus continues to spread mercy not only to his enemies, but someone who is about to be a former enemy, ensuring him that they would both be in paradise together. Not just later, but that very day. Now, some implications there, like, you know, the harrowing of hell and all that mix, like, mess. We're not going to talk about that in this moment. We could go on hours for that. That's whenever we get to one of the Peters, whenever the heck that's brought up. And today, they're going to be in paradise. And I, that's, for me, that's because Jesus is outside of time. Look, we look at the thief on the cross, and we see this man wasn't baptized. He wasn't trained in seminary. But Jesus accepted him nonetheless as a brother and child of God. All that is necessary for salvation is a heart that recognizes our own weakness and seeks Jesus so that we can repent of our sins. This man can, can say more literally than anyone else, this is exactly what happened to him. He understood this simplicity, and we need to stop putting so many hurdles ahead of people when they are willing, able, and of clear mind to accept Jesus as the Lord of their lives. Look, there's some, I will give people some credit here. We want to be careful. We want to make sure that someone's just not making a knee-jerk reaction. It's like, you know, they just had heard a really good sermon one day and said, oh, no, I need Jesus. Or, you know, they just happened to evangelize to him on the street. And they're like, oh, well, that sounds really cool. Let me get into that. Like, there's some hesitancy there, I'm sure, because they may just be making a decision based on new information rather than actually understanding that information and desiring that to change their lives. But we don't need to assign 20 questions to that person. All right, now, before you say yes to Jesus, what do you think about the Trinity? <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on uh, praying to the saints? What are your thoughts on the Eucharist and all this all this junk? Like, sure, those questions matter. But in line of salvation, no, they don't. Outside of the Trinity one. But that's something you don't need to understand, because guess what? I don't fully understand it. There are people who I have read several books in my time here in seminary who have studied it extensively, and my eyes have gone cross-eyed, and they still don't get it. But we need to have enough of an understanding to know what we're getting into. And then after that, we can worry about how the heck there are three persons in one. You're like, is it possible for there to be such a thing as purgatory? Like, or is it the same as Sheol? Is there a literal hell? Like, uh, this is... Do I need to evangelize or is someone never who's never heard of Jesus is God just let them in anyways or something like that? Like we can worry and wrestle with those questions after the fact. And there are answers, hopefully, for all those questions that I can give to the best of my ability. But when it comes to salvation, quit making it harder than it already is. Someone is willing, able, and they're of clear sound of mind. Let them say yes, just like Jesus did on the cross to the thief, 44 through 49. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtains of the temple were torn was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when a centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw they had taken place, what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And, in all, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The curtain tearing in two in the temple is a powerful moment in the history of God's covenantal relationship with his people in Israel. No more would they require a high priest to pray on their behalf to forgive them of their sins, and never more would animal sacrifice be necessary to cover their sins. Jesus had undone all of that with his death on the cross. This is why we no longer need to use our spiritual leaders to ask God for help on our behalf and can instead do it ourselves. Do you realize how much of a blessing that is to not have to travel all the way to Jerusalem on the other side of the world? And say, okay, I need to buy this many, this many goats, this many sheep, this many birds, and they're going to be the ones covering my sacrifice year after year. I can go straight to God and say, God, this is what I'm doing. Help me overcome myself. Forgive me for what I've done. Help me help the people around me. That is a beautiful thing. But don't get me wrong. We should still confess our sins to each other so that we hold one another accountable. But we should also praise God that He speaks personally and lovingly to all of us as a result of the cross. 
because here we see we have the most important moment in history outside of the eventual resurrection. If the resurrection doesn't happen, we're screwed. But it does, and that's what makes it even more important than Jesus' death taking on the totality of our sins here in this moment in time. Because you know what this means? Sin for all time has been defeated. Death has been defeated. He rejected Satan's plan to give up before he started his ministry. He denied his right to a defense so he could die. And he took the totality of every single sin ever committed upon himself so that we would be forever changed. The world would be forever changed. There was a hope that did not exist before this moment in time. And that is Jesus took it all on himself. And if I believe in that, if I repent of my sins, I'm his, and nothing can take that away from me. Not me, not this world, not Satan, not any demons, nor angels, nor height, nor depth. Nothing can take that away from me. I'm his forever. Where once judgment and wrath was righteously inflicted upon everyone, Jesus cheated and destroyed that system with mercy and love that overrode justice for our sakes. And we should praise his name all the more because of that. People say, don't don't say that it's cheating. Like, yes, I'm going to say it's cheating. You know what it means? Because Jesus cheated, and that's good. It is good that Jesus cheated the, uh, hell from what it righteously deserved. It deserves to have every person who has ever rejected him through sin inhabit it. That is justice. But Jesus cheated the grave. He cheated hell. He cheated death. He cheated sin. He cheated the world so that you and I have a chance to say yes to him and be with him forevermore. That's the kind of guy I want on my side. That's the kind of people we have to be. Learn how to cheat the world from what it rightfully deserves. Learn to use the word cheat correctly in a sentence. Don't cheat the world by sinning. There's a big difference. Here we also see with Jesus's last words, he gets the last laugh. I love someone who can always do that. I like to be the person who does that. It pleases me immensely for someone to just get one pithy one-liner that destroys someone else's argument. With one final sentence, Jesus gets the last laugh, showing that even though his enemies plotted his demise, he is the one who decides when he dies and on what terms. He dies willingly for all of us, committing his spirit into the Father's hands. That's a mic dropped in all mic drops there. And because of that, you and I have a chance. We have a hope that did not exist before this moment in time. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. And speaking of Gentiles, well, we have the centurion. He receives no name. But he, like the thief on the cross, is one of the only sober-minded people in attendance. And he acknowledges that Jesus is Lord. <laughs> this, uh, From their point of view, this godless heathen stands at the cross, sees and recognizes the totality of what is happening, and he acknowledges Jesus as Lord, which continues Luke's theme of the gospel not just being for the Jews, it being meant for them and the world. We don't know this guy's name. We know it was important. He was a centurion. He could have very much gotten in trouble for saying like this. He just said a, committed, a, a criminal co committed to death by Rome was innocent. And yet his heart was forever changed, recognizing who Jesus was. And we also see here the people watching from afar, some of his followers, his mother, his, his family members, and acquaintances from home. Their mourning is natural, and they should have mourned. Jesus died. It is always sad when someone dies, or at least it should be. But they also should have remembered what he said would happen following his death. Not everyone kept the faith. And like, look, we are no better thinking that we would have done so had we been there. Guess what we have? We have the blessing of hindsight. I can't say that I would have been the person who still believed even after watching Jesus die on that cross. Knowing me, probably not. I would have made Thomas look like the most, the biggest believer in the world. And people rag on Thomas. And yeah, we'll get there when we get there eventually. He deserves a lot better from us. We'll put it that way. But then we see here that every logical thing in the world said that Jesus had lost here. But God supersedes our logic. And he will raise Jesus up in three days. That is a blessing. 50 through 56, and we'll be done for the day. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On a Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Joseph of Arimathea, or Arimathea, however the heck you want to say it, is kind of also a relative unknown. Besides his place within the Sanhedrin, like much speculation has been brought up about his motives and his relationship with Jesus. But we do see from the context that he was probably there when the council was levying charges against Jesus and he didn't speak up in his defense. We do see privately he was against it. Perhaps it was out of peer pressure or fearing his loss of societal and monetary ranking. But either way, he too denied Jesus just as much as Peter had. And he must have felt some immense guilt and self-hatred at his actions that he sought penance in giving his Lord a place to be buried. But part of what we see here and in the other Gospels is that the writers reflect on him as a righteous man who eagerly sought the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Both can be true. Just like how we in our own lives can be on fire for God and yet sin in that very same day. Joseph's actions to bury Jesus in what was most likely his own family's tomb was making a statement that he hadn't said it out loud during a trial about how Jesus was his Lord. And guess what? By the way, if we take this literally, he was unclean ceremonially by touching Jesus's body. If he literally did this himself, by all customs and rules, he should not be doing anything he's about to be doing in the next day on the Sabbath because he shouldn't be a part of the fellowship with the people. But he took on that uncleanliness for Jesus's sake. So we often, so many times, this term cancel culture gets thrown around a lot. It's that sense of, well, someone did this in the past or someone has said this right now. Therefore, I'm going to make sure they can never get another job in the industry again, or I'm going to ignore them in their existence. And I'll let, sometimes, yeah, sure, I can get behind it. But just because someone tweeted something a couple years ago that they've since repented of, I don't have the right to say, I never have to listen to you again. Someone has a different political belief than me, I don't necessarily have the right to say, I'm never listening to you again. Someone I know has sinned, who's been a member of the church, is the leader of a church, they've sinned, it's admitted, they've repented of it. I didn't get to say, well, uh, they did it and therefore... They're worthless to me. Like, no, every single person in this world has done something that is a cancelable offense. If you don't think you have, you're not looking at yourself well enough. Every single person. I've done things. If you knew, you'd go, I don't know if I want to listen to this man. That should be one of the reactions we have, but it shouldn't be the final reaction because we need to see the totality of that person. There are plenty of things that would probably disqualify me from ever teaching you from this book, yet Jesus covers them all. And the same thing is true of Joseph here. He denied Jesus, while at the same time desiring to worship him. Who does that sound like? Every single Christian I've ever known, because we have all denied Jesus at some point in our lives. And yet he died for us anyway. And yet we can still do his good work in this world, be forgiven, have salvation, and never once be taken away from his presence, no matter what we do or say. There's a time and a place for cancel culture, but it's not just simply because someone screwed up. It's not simply because they chose to do something wrong, especially if they are repentant. Now, if they're unrepentant, we have some issues. We need to get them, get on their case, say, hey, be better than this. As I smack my, smack my microphone, smack my microphone, and completely undermine the point I was just making there. Like, look, just because someone screws up doesn't mean they're always ineligible to preach the gospel if they repent. Joseph repented. There are plenty of people out there, and I won't name names for right now, because it's just not enough time, who have not. Don't take after their example. Also, well, speaking of mistakes and uh, bad things, I need to make a correction about the timeline that I gave for last episode. That I couldn't have planned this better. I had to send my notes, and I totally forgot I put that down. I, I got my dates mixed up uh, to when it came exactly when the Sabbath w would occur in the midst of Jesus' trials. I think I said something like I mixed up Friday and, excuse me, Saturday or something like that. I'd have to re-listen to the episode. I should have written it down so I can fully like ask forgiveness for this. But uh, like, sure, mixing up dates is like perfectly in character for me. 
but it makes me irresponsible for not making sure I had my facts right before I opened my big fat mouth. Like my goal here is to say things as accurately as possible. And when I screw up, I also need to own up to it. That's what I'm doing right now. I screwed up. Thanks for your patience and understanding. And like, look, if there's ever anything you notice that I've said that's wrong, please feel free to reach out to me and correct me well. Like the last thing I want to do on this platform is spread misinformation, no matter how small or seemingly inconsequential, like it, it probably, most of you probably didn't even notice I screwed up, but I did. And I can't hide that from you. It probably didn't affect anyone's salvation that I screwed up those dates, but it was still incorrect. Uh, like no matter how small or seemingly inconsequential something is, especially when I'm focusing on something as important as the death and resurrection of Jesus, I need to be corrected. That's your little PSA there. Watch out for what I'm saying. Make sure I have my facts straight. I'm always open to being corrected when I screw up. Because that's the last thing I want to do. And finally here, before we wrap up, let's look at the women who came to help prepare Jesus for burial. In the midst of their mourning, they still followed the law better than their supposed betters. Their supposed superiors, offering Jesus the proper respect that he deserved. And then they continued their faithful walks with God by resting on the Sabbath properly. They rested on the Sabbath because they were faithful. (laughs) The Pharisees and Sadducees rested on the Sabbath because they thought their power was secure, not because they were following God with their hearts. Luke points this out not only as a further continuation of the importance of women serving within the kingdom, but also to contrast them with the Pharisees and Sadducees for their faithlessness. I love this gospel. I love Luke so much. Guys, thank you for listening to this again, almost as long as last time. Not going over an hour, hopefully. Uh, please, if you have a chance, leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice just to help us with the rankings and the ratings and stuff like that. Uh, I really appreciate everything you've done so far and continuing to spread the show. I've talked with a couple of people who are probably listening to this right now that uh, have finally caught up with everything, so I'm very happy with, to hear that that's happening. If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and on its teachings, then check out the other members of the NSL Ministries podcasting network. Contact me at letnothingmoveyoupodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music that he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you on accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.